When I won Worlds in 87, I'd say maybe 10, 15% of people that I spoke to even knew what I was talking about. Like disc golf, you mean discount golf, right? No, no, not discount golf. Disc, I, you know, flat plastic flying discs. That's crazy, really? And now I would say maybe 15% of people have not heard of disc golf. Yeah, you do your drills and then when you need them on the course, if you've done your job, they should be there for you. Well, I don't think I'd be overstating it to say I was the best putter at that tournament. I, uh, I missed, I think, one inside 40 pretty much the whole week. Hi, I'm Greg Hosfeld, 1987 World Champion, sponsored by Hanover Champion Discs, and you're listening to the Chain Clankers Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Chain Clankers Podcast. Myself, Horatio, with my partner, Q. We have a really good episode for you guys today. Got onto a bunch of different topics, but really interesting. Hopefully, keep you guys entertained, you know, on your on your drive into work, on your lunch break, whatever it is, or if you're out there, you know, playing around, listening to us, that's awesome. Glad to be, you know, you guys spending the time with us. But what did we talk about this episode, Q? Yeah, today we had on world champion Greg Hosfeld. Super fun to talk to him. He's one of the smartest guys in disc golf that you all have ever talked to. He's played over a thousand different courses and has designed many, many more. So this guy knows what he's talking about, especially the second ace round question that we ask every episode. Yeah, you're going to want to make sure you stay tuned for that one because his answer is pretty fun and maybe you'll be able to go down there someday as well. So we really talked about his journey, how he became a world champion, as well as we talked a lot about course design design and the implications of course design, as well as how you can better prepare for tournaments. Tournament season is here. I am playing in a tournament upcoming. Actually, by the time this episode drops, my tournament will be over and I've got more on the schedule. Horatio's start thinking about getting some on the schedule and you probably do as well. So we wanted a fresh episode about how you can be more prepared for your tournament rounds, how you can play better in your tournament rounds and therefore have more success in your tournament rounds. So you're going to want to make sure you stay tuned through the end to hear hear all of Greg's incredible tips. Before we get on to our episode with Greg, I do want to give some shout outs to our sponsors of the Chain Clankers. We are so thankful to Disc Dot, Upper Park Disc Golf, and OTP Discs for sponsoring the Chain Clankers. You support our podcast and what we do by supporting our sponsors. We have affiliate links and promo codes in the description below. So make sure you check them out. If you want to improve your putting, if you want a better disc golf bag, and if you want some of the best discs in the game, you're going to want to make sure you check out our sponsors. Again, you support our show by supporting our sponsors, as well as leaving us that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I see those ratings coming in. We, I think we're to at least 60 on both. So 40 away from being able to do the giveaway. It's going to be a good giveaway once we get there. Thank you guys so much. We really do appreciate everything that you guys do for us. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you let us know in the comments down below. Without further ado, let's get the world champ on. In the intro, we've got the world champ on today's podcast. You've heard him a little bit in our big group episode, but today we are going to learn more about Greg Hosfeld's journey and how he became a world champion in the sport of disc golf. Greg, how are we doing tonight? Fabulous. Just uh, looking forward to getting uh, talking with you guys. And uh, yeah, man, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I know you said you had a, quite a bit of disc golf stuff going on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is it classified or what do you have going uh, on? Actually, there, there's something going on right now that's uh, 
definitely classified. And, uh, but uh, when it comes to light, I'm hoping that it will be news and not just to me, but uh, to the disc golf community in general. But on the more local uh, scene, I'm, uh, I've got five of six courses uh, playable in the Lake County Disc Golf Trail project in Lake County, which is a little bit northwest of Orlando. Um, one more to go there. Uh, somebody new at the head of the project. So we have to go in and kind of check in with them before we move on to the last project. Just a lot of little things in the works. And uh, most of them are working with uh, parks departments and government. So they are moving slower than molasses in January. But uh, things are rolling. Yeah, absolutely. I, my my guess is maybe we get a, a course suited for the Disc Golf Pro Tour to come down to Florida next year. I don't know. Wink, wink. That would be, that would be pretty fun if that was uh, the classified info. Uh, well, I mean, uh, the goal of the Lake County Disc Golf Trail Project was to uh, bring people into town and put heads in bed. So we are hoping to bid for a Solinsky soon. Mm. Um, so uh, we are definitely hoping to get the, the elders here. And uh, I think that they'll really enjoy the courses. We've got uh, two that are doing very well. I think right now I've, I've got to look at the uh, at DGCR again, which nobody uses anymore. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think we've got something like seven of the top 10 courses in uh, Florida, uh, or at least, I mean, I have seven of the 10 top courses and a couple of them are uh, on the Lake County Disc Golf Trail as well. What is the DGCR? Oh, Disc Golf Course Review. See, I told you nobody okay. goes there. You know? That's what I thought it was. Uh. Before, like, U-Disc and stuff really became popular, I remember trying to look up, like, yeah, courses, okay. and that that came up, and I said, wow, this website has not been touched in a minute. Um, yeah, it, it's a shame because it's the only uh, course directory that actually asks people to be – thoughtful and contemplative about uh, what they think about the course uh you know with all respect to all of you discs other features they, you know a lot of the uh reviews well they're not reviews they're ratings and uh they're usually based on some sort of knee-jerk reaction as opposed to really thinking about the entire project and yeah. as a whole you know yeah and, and i think that's important as a course designer that makes a big difference to me yeah, definitely. I feel like those reviews on UDisc are kind of like reviews on Amazon. It's like, <laughs> right? The only people that will go on there are the ones that had like an amazing experience or an absolutely awful experience. And that's, you know, who you get reviews from. And also, you know, we just went and played a course this weekend and it was wooded and kind of tough. And I was noticing that people that really loved that challenge gave it really good reviews. And the people that, weren't very skilled yet and didn't know how to play in the woods and played bad, gave it a bad review because it was oh, really yeah. hard. Yeah. And that's not what it should be. Kind of like what we're talking about. Well, no, but I mean, you only know what you know, you know? Yeah. And so people at the beginning of their disc golf career, um, I mean, I've gotten some of my best courses have gotten a one or a two because they lost a disc. 
Yeah. And, uh, mm. you know, you talk to them and they're like, yeah, I was playing the tips. I was playing the men's tees. And they're like, well, <laughs> you know, you're, they, they weren't built for you, bro. You know, try, try your hand at the easier stuff and work your way up to the men, the, the, the tips. But Horatio, it, have you, difficult. have you ever left a review on a course before Horatio? I've left ratings. Um, but not reviews, kind of like I was talking about. I've never had a amazing experience or really bad to leave a review. I'm not really a person that leaves reviews, but I definitely need to because I look at them before I go play a course. So it's one of those things where I'm using the feature and like taking advantage of it, but I'm not giving back. So definitely, you know, that's our quick, quick uh, tip right now. If you guys are using Udisc or DGCR or anything, if you use those things and you like to see what courses are like before you drive an hour, two hours, um, leave a review. If you go out there and play it, but do an honest, give us a quick rundown of what a review should be like a little short review. What would, what's good for designers and just for other players who are from out of town. Well, there's so many aspects to the course. I mean, you want to make sure that people look at things like uh, whether there's parking, whether the fairways uh, separate or separate from each other. There's, there's plenty of space, no safety issues, apparent, um, you know, in some cases, uh, if the, the T's, if there's dual T's, are they all stacked in a line or are they diverse? Do they come at, come at it from different angles uh same with dual baskets which i'm doing a lot of those now um uh you know i mean in florida shade is of particular uh value and uh people don't really consider that sometimes but uh man yeah there's a lot of little things i mean we have uh does it have decent bathrooms does it have uh bathrooms yeah Absolutely. And then we have one course locally with a bathroom, and that's because it's a park and it's just bathrooms for the park. But no other course that I can think of has a bathroom. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people leave reviews on a course, uh, and the entire park is reflected. Yeah. And and that's that's just uh, you know, a lot of people when they refer to the course, they're really referring to the entire park. But, uh, you know, you want to make sure like when I'm when I'm doing uh, dual T, dual basket courses, theoretically, they are catering to four different skill levels. Uh, And so if I've done my job, then that will be the case. Now, whether uh, the person chooses to play a configuration that is actually commensurate to their skill set that you know that's up in the air we don't know or even if they play a tournament there uh then it's up to the tournament director to make the proper assignments for certain skill sets but uh yeah i mean there there, there's quite a lot of things i mean you want to just make sure that uh you know you're trying to make the pleasant experience pleasant and uh one of the big issues that we see is uh, not just routing, but also uh, well-signed 
Uh, in Florida, we get a lot of one and done players. They just want to rip through, play it and head out. And yeah. uh, if they aren't well signed, then uh, uh, they, they have a much uh, harder time getting around. It's not nearly as um, not as nearly as pleasant an experience. Yeah, makes sense. So, I've loved this discussion so far talking about course design. I want to get into it in more detail, but I want to start off more with how you got into disc golf and then eventually we'll kind of get back into course design. So, so Greg, what was your first instance with disc golf? How did you find the sport? I didn't find disc golf right away. Actually. Uh, I, I was just a, a Frisbee player all the way through my childhood. We played Frisbee football on the street. Uh, and, uh, you know, our whole neighborhood was really into that. Um, and one day this, uh, my next door neighbor, uh, Gary Getman, who, uh, by the way, could go through the entire alphabet and up to 10 in one belch. Pretty impressive. And uh, he came over and uh, told me that the Florida State Frisbee champs were doing a demo at a halftime at a semi-pro football game in town. And uh, I was like, oh, really? Well, let's just go see how good these guys are. And uh, we got there and turned out it was Mark and Jeff Watson. Now, uh, they were great overall players, which back in the early days, most Frisbee players, that's what they were. They were overallers. And uh, so uh, they did an amazing demo. They were doing freestyle mostly. And uh, I made sure that uh, my next door neighbor and I were throwing, uh, just playing catch, outside the only gate through which the Watsons could leave. And uh, so they finished their demo. They came out and they saw us throwing and they said, Hey, you play, huh? Well, we play Sundays out here at this particular park. Come on out. Gary didn't, but I did. And I followed him around for four years until I beat him. But uh, we played ultimate. We played uh, uh, freestyle. We did uh, field events and that sort of thing. And they turned me on to disc golf. Now, if you are you familiar with Jeff Watson at all? Not not enough. Not a whole okay. lot. Okay. Well, uh, for those that don't know, Jeff Watson was the second ever PDGA world champion. He won in 1983 in Huntsville. Uh, and uh, he also won a couple of years before he won the disc golf event in the Rose Bowl at the World Frisbee Championships. And I don't know if that was... 81, 80, I, I, I don't recall the year. But uh, anyway, the Watsons uh, turned me on to not just disc golf, but pretty much all of competitive flying disc sports. And uh, after a while, I realized that disc golf, I apologize, either my dome light keeps going out or the tumor's coming back. I can't figure out which. But um <clears throat> Anyway, um, yeah, they pretty much turned me on to it. And uh, I uh, got into comp uh, competition around 76 and never looked back. Tell us a little bit about those, the field events, you know, because we've heard about some of the other, you know, earlier stuff in Disc Golf Ultimate and whatnot. But what do those field events look like? If you could just give us a quick little rundown. Sure. Well, distance is obviously self-explanatory. Just throw as far as you can. Uh, Self-caught flights is actually divided into two events. 
Uh, one is maximum time aloft where you throw it and run it down, catch it with one hand cleanly. And it's for time. And then the other aspect of that, uh, of uh, SCF is uh, throw, run and catch where you do the same thing, but you do it for distance and they have a multiplier and, you know, uh, discathon is an event that is sort of a foot race with a disc. You make the disc travel, of course, but there's no baskets, uh, a lot of running. Uh, not a lot of people do that recreationally, only for uh, overall tournaments. Uh, freestyle, obviously, is doing the tricks, the trick aspect, the hot dog aspect of uh, Frisbee. And uh, uh, I love uh, freestyle because for me, it was the exact polar opposite of disc golf. Disc golf is slow, plotting, and methodical, whereas freestyle is very quick and reactive. And uh, but both are uh, very active in problem solving. You know, uh, disc golf you have to do it slowly and then execute. And freestyle you're doing it reactively, as you know, right now. So um, let's see. Uh, double disc court, uh, another amazing game. Uh, it's basically two courts. Uh, that are say 15 meters by 15 meters and they're separated by I think 15 or 17 meters, two guys in each uh, court as a team, each team has a disc and you try to get your disc in the other team's court. And uh, as it comes to your court, you have to defend by either catching it or letting it go out. So if it's going to land in, and roll out or touch out of bounds at any point you want to let it go. And there's a lot of communication and the really big fun aspect of it is that uh, you try to catch the other team with two discs in their possession at the same time. So there's amazing escapes uh, where you've got two discs coming at you at the same time and you have to like tip one in the air. The other guy catches the second one, gets rid of it. And then you catch the first tip and uh, deliver it and hope then the other team has the opportunity to escape or not. So it, it's crazy. It's an amazing game. Uh, I'm not doing it any justice by explaining it. That's for certain, but um, that's, that's most of the overall events. I'm, I'm probably leaving something out, but uh yeah, that one sounds like so much fun. I would, I would mess around and play that. I think, I think, Frasier, you know, would make a pretty good team if we did something like that. So, my, my question then is, why did disc golf take off in popularity so much more than overall? Well, it's less physically demanding for one. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, the concentration level of disc golf is. Uh, really you only have to concentrate for those moments where you're up, you know, otherwise you're, you're spectating. You may be thinking about strategy or what to do next or whatever, but, uh, and, and, uh, I mean, currently I'm 63. Uh, I had an aorta attack four years ago and I can still play disc golf. I really can't do those other events now. Um, so if you can throw, you can play disc golf. And uh, I think the fact that you can get pretty mediocre pretty darn fast, as opposed to uh, golf, where it takes a long time to even get lousy. <laughs> so.
So uh, I think that's one of the primary reasons or a few of the primary reasons. You know, you can play all the way until you, know, you, you just simply can't walk into the woods. Yeah, I mean, that's that, you know, definitely one of the big reasons. And also just about anyone can play, you know, whoever wants to, you know, you go out to a course and you see every, you know, every shape and size or whatever you will, you know, out there playing disc golf. And it's great to see because, you know, you don't have to be tall to be good. You don't have to be skinny to be good. You don't have to be whatever, you know, athletic to be good. And and it's not even a matter of, you know, being better than other people. It's just kind of fun being out there and improving. I think it's one thing that gets gets a lot of people out there. I mean, we were just watching the Las Vegas Challenge, and I was just telling Quentin how Brody Smith, he almost finished in the top four, and he just started playing, you know, two years ago, two, three years ago. He's a COVID player, you know, started playing around that time. Wow. There's a little more to it than that. And he's, he's previously <laughs> ultimate. Yeah, he used to play ultimate. Yeah. Um, He's got a very long ultimate uh, career. He also, uh, you know, I mean, he coach. You, you may have heard of his obscure coach. You may have heard of that Macbeth guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that didn't hurt his chances. And but just uh, you know, and also Horatio, let me jump in real quick because by the time people listen to this, they're going to be confused. We're recording this at the end of round one. So when maybe Brody Smith wins and I'll just cut this out, but (laughs) I'm just saying, I want to make sure it's very clear in case he finishes like 40th and we get roasted that we are recording right now at the end of round one. Sorry, go ahead, Horatio. You know, even if, you know, even if he finishes 40th, you know, he was still almost finished in the top four round four competing with the guys have been playing, you know, some of them all their life. But what I'm trying to say, the point I'm trying to make is that, any like you were saying, anyone can get good at the sport if they're willing to commit the time. And yes, he had Paul Macbeth to help him coach, which you know you can find a lot of those videos. You can you know you can find any pro to coach you, you know, from YouTube. But I feel like Brody Smith is definitely like one of the hardest working play, uh, players. Like he works his butt off, but it doesn't. There's not many excuses. Like if you want to be good and if you want to go on tour and you want to compete at something, what you want to do. Disc golf allows you to do that if you're willing to put in the time. Yeah. I mean, the really amazing thing about it, uh, you know, you, you touched on this earlier. It is incredibly inclusive. Uh, little children can play right next to adults. Uh, beginners can play right next to world champions because ultimately we're not competing against each other. We're competing against the course and ourselves. And really what anybody else does in your group should theoretically have zero bearing on your game. Unlike most other competitive sports where you're going head to head with people. And, and so what they do has a direct impact on what you do, even ultimate. And, and in disc golf, that's not the case. Now it's all, you know, what that does. You know, and so with with disc golf, I I'd love the fact that uh, you know Brody's been able to come into this thing and and uh, improve incredibly well, far more than most people would have anticipated. It's just very, I guess, humbling or inspiring, you know, to a lot of people because you know a lot of other sports professionals, and this might change, you know, in ten years, that might not be the case. The level might be so 
the level might increase so much that you won't be able to do that. But at this moment, you know, you can look at it and be like, you know, I just discuss, I'm 32 or whatever, you know, with the age you are, maybe you're not young. And you're like, well, I'm not like Emerson Keith or Eagle McMahon who started when they were, you know, just walking. I'm not like those guys. I'm never going to be able to be good. So it's inspiring to see someone like Brody and other players, you know, Ella also in previous ultimate, just picking it up and competing and saying, and just, I guess that little spurt of, you know, light that you can do it, you know, for people that aren't, didn't pick it up when they were children. Yeah. It, it's uh, the earlier you start anything, the yeah. greater chance you have at, at becoming a virtuoso or, or a pro. And uh, you know, so the folks that, uh, you know, whose parents played, uh, yeah. I mean, look at look at Val and Avery. You know, both of their parents were uh, players. Uh, mom's world champ, so you know they had a, a, an amazing uh, head start on everyone, and uh, that's the great thing about it. You know. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, if you want a future world champion out there, if you're a parent and you want your child to be a pro or, you know, a future world champ, as soon as they can walk, start taking them out to the course, give them the discs, have them start throwing and learning. And let's, let's get this thing going. There's, uh, before that, like... actually. Uh, yeah. You want to give them a mini. So they're teething on it. Yeah. 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 There you go. <laughs> I feel like there's, there's a very blurry line with that. You know, if you do that incorrectly, if you push it on them too hard, they will grow up to hate the sport and, you know, to have nothing well, to do with it. Sure. Well, I mean, I had that experience with golf. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I took up, uh, my dad was a tremendous golfer. Um, one, he, he was, uh, like Elks club state champion, Florida state champion, like five years in a row. And, uh, before that I took golf lessons in 69, won my class and, uh, went out to play with my old man and oh, you know, you know what? I don't need this humiliation. I have friends for that. And, uh, I discovered disc golf after that and I never looked back. And the whole yeah. key is to just make it fun, which, uh, my dad did not do. You know, I, I didn't have fun playing golf and, uh, I just wasn't interested. Yeah, absolutely. You really got to keep it fun. Even for, you know, let's say you're bringing out your friends who have heckled you for years and years and years, and you're finally getting them to go out. You want to keep it light. You want to keep it fun because you want to keep them coming back. As soon as you really start to be Mr. I'm going to give you a tip every single time you do something wrong, or I'm going to call out everything. You know, once you start being that guy or gal, that's how you get less people wanting to come out with you. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. You, You want to make it fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I, I give a lot of lessons in my area and, uh, you know, when I play with somebody that's pretty new, I always ask first, you know, do you mind if I make a suggestion or something like that? But, uh, yeah, I won't, you know, through the whole course of the whole round, come on, man, you got to get that footwork right. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, early, pretty early on, I, I figured I'm I'm not going to be that guy. You know, it's just, you want people to enjoy themselves and, uh, you know, if they, if they want your help, they'll either ask for it or not, you know, I'm good either way. 
Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, to any anyone starting out new or not even new, you know, who wants to improve, uh, just having that coachable mindset may and like, yes, like people should keep it fun. But if you want to improve, like this sport is more fun when you're good at it. You know, I had I, I had a lot of things more fun when you're good. Yeah, at it. <laughs> I had I had a long break, you know, there where I didn't play for a while. I went back and just not good as I used to be. And it just, it sucked. It wasn't as fun. And so, you know, for people that are learning, um, if you're getting upset, you know, people or friends or whoever giving you tips and you're getting upset, then I feel like you don't really want to be good. You know, you you just want to, I guess it's an ego thing, you know, don't have an ego. You know, if you play with someone that's better than you, um, if they're willing to help you, you know, just, be coachable and, you know, learn as much as you can. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, I was exceptionally lucky. I had, uh, like I said, I had Jeff Watson to learn from. I don't really consider him a teacher, you know, he, he would uh, be wearing flip-flops and I'm wearing my Nike sharks and he's still out throwing me and doesn't even look like he's trying. And I'm like, hey, Jeff, how do you how do you do that? He goes, well, you know, you just grip it and all of a sudden reach back and all, you know, like, bam, there it is. And it's like, okay. And ultimately, I had to kind of take what he was doing and try to emulate it. But, uh, you know, I mean, my gosh, we've had so many good players in the state. Uh, Steve Slazer, uh, PDG number 55, he was one of the top rated players before uh, Climo took over the number one spot. And so there were a lot of good people to emulate. Um, and yeah, it, it can be daunting, but it's also inspiring to see people that are better than you. And, and uh, it shows you what's possible and then you can work toward it. Absolutely. All right, Greg, let's keep moving along with your journey in disc golf, right? So you got into disc golf, started kind of taking it seriously how do you go from just somebody who's going out every now and then to a world champion kind of take me through that process of how long did it take for you to start playing tournaments why did you start playing tournaments and as you were getting better was there anything you were really focusing on or did it all just kind of start clicking for you well i mean i started playing tournaments fairly early on because sarasota where i grew up uh, was an incredibly active uh, area for disc sports in general. So, uh, and and plus, uh, you know, Jeff was uh, at the top of his form pretty much uh, very shortly after I met him. So, yeah, my first tournament was in 76, which is the same year I graduated high school. A lot of people may or may not know this, but I was an entertainer for a long time. I was a professional juggler and uh, I started getting bookings on the road and realized that maybe I can book myself into a venue at the same time as a tournament and really started doing that as my MO. I started looking to book myself into comedy clubs mostly. Uh, on the road uh, during the same weekend as a show. So uh, pretty much all day I would be throwing stuff horizontally and then all night I'd be throwing stuff vertically. So uh, burnt the candle at both ends, but, uh, and it was always a battle for me because I was trying to be 
uh, a, a really solid entertainer so I could get these bookings and make the, the, the guaranteed money. But at the same time, I'm trying to be the, the greatest disc golfer. And uh, so there was a lot of pull to try to excel at both or all three because you're talking about juggling and stand up and uh, it was crazy you know i was i was burning the candle at both ends trying to uh get good at both uh but uh there's nothing like tournament play to really uh, hone you in and get you to focus on your game you know my game early on uh was probably more about putting and approach shots I uh, was a real good scrambler, and uh, in 87, it really started to gel, I, and uh, I ended up getting uh, 11th at the U.S. Open overall in golf, uh, 10th at uh, Mid-America, let's see, it was like 7th, uh, 8th in Fort Wayne, 7th in Cincinnati, and I thought, well, gee, I've got the... Uh, Indiana States, the Ohio States, and then uh, doubles and then singles. So I'll probably get fourth and then third and then second and I'll win worlds. Yeah, that's how it's going to happen. Well, I got, I ended up actually uh, winning Indiana States. Figured I'd be too soon. Uh, got, I think, second in uh, Ohio State. And uh, Sam Farrens and I actually got second in worlds. And, uh, I ended up winning the first playoff ever for MPO at Worlds. And uh, this is actually the first time it was ever held out, well, the only time that it's ever been held out of the United States um, in Toronto. So uh, I was like, just out of the country. But uh, yeah, I love giving the other MPO champs a bunch of grief. Sure, sure, you can win it at home. I had to leave the country and bring it back. You know. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, in, in uh, Worlds, there's no question. Uh, Mike Sullivan, who lived right there at the course, he and I tied on the final hole. He parked it six feet behind the basket. I left it 40 feet short, bagged it to force a playoff. And, uh, you know, he was out driving me on every hole, and I was pretty much out putting him on every hole. So um, I wouldn't say that's my strong suit now, though. Uh, I've... Uh, well, I'm not even sure if I have a strong suit now. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it it varies. It's always um, it's always variable. Sometimes the putting's on, the driving's kind of meh, and sometimes the, the driving is just fabulous, and uh, the putting isn't there. This year, I uh, did a lot of prep work for Worlds and. Uh, the Selinski and uh, in particular, I was probably off the tee at the Selinski as well as I've ever been, even in my youth. But the putting just wasn't there. I got a bad case of the yips right in the near the end and uh, just couldn't pull it off, you know. Uh, so like I said, it varies from day to day. I, when I step onto the tee, I never know which guy's going to show up. You know, it's always, yeah. uh, I guess it keeps it interesting. Take us back, you know, for if you, as much as you can remember that even, I guess just that final round or just, oh, the overall, when you won worlds, what was it that was on for you? You know, cause I feel like, especially right now, 
I mean, this round one, I'm going to keep talking about this because, I mean, disc golf is back on. But I think in the, like, top 15 players, it's, like, from first place to, like, fifth. Like, everyone, like there's so many players, you know, contending. And the one that's going to win is the one that has it on, the one that has that, that X factor that weekend. So what was it for you when you won Worlds, you know, that you felt her that was just working? Well, I don't think I'd be overstating it to say I was the best putter at that tournament. I, uh, I missed, I think, one inside 40 pretty much the whole week. So, yeah, no matter, no matter where I was, my, my putt was confident enough that I could hit it. And, uh, you know, I was hitting 50s and 80s pretty regularly. I would say that I was putting then like the top five were kind of putting now, except I was doing it with archaic plastic. You know, um, they, they, nothing as uh, fast. I think our fastest disc in 87 was something like, uh, an XD, uh, classic rock. So, I mean, we, we didn't have high speed drivers at all. And I was not a powerful thrower. Um, I used to tell people I have unbridled accuracy. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't work. I couldn't throw all that far, but I could, I never missed. Were, uh, were you line. just, were you just good at practicing? Did you practice a bunch or was it something with hand-eye coordination? I mean, you were a juggler. Hand-eye coordination is yeah. huge in other sports. Like, was it a sure. combination of that or what, or did you just practice, you know, 10 hours a day? Uh, no, I couldn't practice 10 hours a day. I had right. my act that I was on, on the road and, uh, but I did practice, uh, extensively. And, uh, I, I, I did a lot of speed golf early on a lot of speed golf and it really helps with your instinctual game. Uh, you don't have time for analysis paralysis. You don't have time to think about your shot. You know what you're doing 15, 20 feet before you get to your lie and once the foot is behind your lie, you're throwing. And so I did an enormous amount of that. And it actually really improved my confidence and my instinctual game. So it made it a lot. Uh, made, I didn't have to think about what I was doing nearly as much. And so, yeah, it was zero question it was absolutely my putting and it was on just because uh i was on tour that year and like i told you my my tournament finishes just kept creeping up incrementally and peaked at the precise right moment i mean i i literally i i mean and i still tied and i had to i had to win the playoff so yeah, it, it was, there was no question. It was, it was all about putting. I'm hoping to get the video of the playoff. I have it. I have the video of the playoff. I just haven't been able to post it on YouTube. Uh, I'm hoping to get that posted. And and when you see me drive, you're like, I, there, you know, there were times back then when I was uh, still doing like a hop skip. I wasn't even always doing my X step. So I, I've changed my form three times since winning worlds my driving form 
since since winning worlds. But putting that changes without me, <laughs> and I have to keep going back and finding it. But uh, easily, easily the putting was was the uh, magic bullet there. Yeah, we we got to get that video on YouTube. I, I'm I'm ready to watch that that playoff and, and see uh, how it went down. So you're gonna have to let us know when that happens. But let, let's talk a little bit, I guess, you know, about how can newer players, you know, those guys and gals who are signing up for their first ever tournaments this year, or maybe you're somebody who's been playing tournaments for a while and you're looking for an edge to get better. Would you say that that speed golf is a is a good idea before a tournament? Maybe go to the course if you have that ability and just not even think and just roll through the course or what are some tips you have for playing better in tournaments? I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, you know, speed golfing through a course that you're not familiar with is a good idea. Um, not to say that I haven't done that. I've done that on numerous occasions. I mean, uh, well, I mean, uh, in, in 2008, uh, I had the most, uh, the record for the most amount of courses played. And uh, I found out that Ben Calhoun was trying to beat my record and uh, beat me to a thousand. So I like, well, can't have that. So I set up a tour and I went on the road uh, to hit a bunch of courses. And yeah, I pounded out a lot of courses playing speed golf, uh, something to the tune of half of them that I played on that tour. But if you're going to play a course for, you know, prep for a tournament, yeah, maybe you speed golf at once, but I I think, you know, you've, you've got to play it like you're going to play it. When you went on that tour, you know, speed golfing, how well did you play? Better than normal or? Yeah, it's, it's actually, it was kind of infuriating because frequently I played better speed golfing than I did when I was slow plotting and methodical and, and playing normally. And I, like I said, I, I attribute it to just, overthinking things you know yeah. uh i think that your instinctual game is probably way better than you would think but uh you know somebody once said to me you know he, he goes man you make this look easy and I'm like it is easy we just make it hard <laughs> and that's my opinion anyway i think we just make it harder than it needs to be yeah, we were talking to Brian Schweberger a couple of episodes ago, and he was talking a lot about how he, when he steps on the tee, he's trying to go completely blank with his mind and just not think about anything and just let his body do the work. And I feel like that's something that I've definitely been trying to do with my own game over the last couple of weeks, and I've, I've definitely seen some improvement with that. So is it one of those things where when you're in that tournament setting, I obviously, at least for a ton of people, I know myself included, there's, de there's a difference in the gameplay. There's a difference in how you're feeling because it's, it, there's more pressure, I guess. So something, if you guys have been listening for the last couple of weeks, you've heard this, but I'll go through it real quick. You know, Horatio, Horatio and I, we've been trying to add more pressure to our rounds, you know, yada, yada, that then tries to equivalent a tournament round. So, is it almost one of those things when you step up on the tee or maybe don't step up on the tee until you are ready to throw and once you're on there, just go for it and stop thinking about it? Like how would how could you maybe implement some of those speed golf ideas or tactics or you know 
I'm not finding the right word, but how could you implement speed golf into your actual tournament rounds to allow your mental game to be a little bit better? Well, I mean, admittedly, it's, it's a very different scenario playing speed golf than just regular golf. Uh, really, like I said, it just comes down to, uh, you know, when you step on the tee, you should have an idea of what you're going to do and, uh, just allow yourself to execute. And, and, you know, here, here's something that I, I, I'm going to change it up a little bit here for a moment, but one thing this, uh, speed golf does not allow you to do, or, or it really doesn't give you time to do. And that's, think about how you're doing. You want to think about what you're doing, not how you're doing. Because when you think about how you're doing, you're not in the present. You're in the past, thinking about all the shots that you've done until now. Or you're placing a value on the shot for the future of what it it may mean to your round. And really, what you're supposed to be concentrating on is this throw right now. You've got to be in the present. I think one thing disc golf teaches you is to be in the present. And the more you start, oh, I've been swilling, oh, this is going to suck. <laughs> and, and that there's a good possibility. You're right. But, um, yeah, man. I mean, that's the biggest thing. I figured that out. I, when did I, I was like world championships in, uh, it was 94. Uh, I think that was the first year that I was uh, eligible for masters because it was 35 at the time. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go win this and then go right back to playing open. And with three holes to go in the world, it was working. And then I started thinking about how I was doing instead of what I was doing. And I ended up taking third because I made some tactical errors that uh, I probably wouldn't have made if I had, uh, you know, just allowed myself to take it one shot at a time. That's super interesting. You know, we've talked about it a bunch of times, but, you know, it's just you start to hear from so many people that, you know, it makes you think or makes you like, you know, this is true. Like, this is definitely something that happens. Like, how much of it is mental? You know, I talk about all the time about how... Some of my, some of my best rounds are me playing by myself. You know, I don't oh, care yeah, about yeah. score. I don't care about impressing or out driving. Yeah, <laughs> or out driving the person I'm playing with, or whatever it is. You know, or trying to show them that I can throw this disc how it's supposed to, or whatever. Like it, like I'm just out there. Like you're out there. It's really, uh, it's genuine disc golf. Like you're out there just playing. You know, you're not out there doing much more than that. You're you're not worried about how you're doing. Just like enjoying yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I think if people can, you know, transfer that over to tournament rounds or, you know, to league nights or stuff like that, that's where people start to enjoy it and play better for sure. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about how someone can play better in tournaments. Would you recommend... Let me backtrack, I guess. How would you recommend approaching a tournament weekend, right? So let's say it's 
what today's Thursday, right? Let's say maybe Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, midweek, something like that. Maybe it's the week before because you don't have time. How would you prepare for attacking a tournament? Would you try to play that course as much as possible? Would you not touch a disc for a week and just let all that muscle memory take over? How would you prepare for a tournament? Well, I, you know, this asking me that question in the eighties and asking me now, you're going to get two entirely different answers. Um, but, uh, I did a lot of, I did a lot of prep. Uh, I found that believe it or not, yoga, uh, has an enormous, uh, is it was an enormous plus for me, uh, being somebody that used to juggle a bowling ball, a machete and an apple for a living. Uh, you know, my upper body would be just really super tight. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of running and it, it just the stretching in general and making sure that the body is going to be able to perform the functions that your brain assigns it. That's that's a pretty big deal right there. Um, now, also, when I'm uh, now that I'm older, it, it, it's it's energy conservation never even occurred to me. I didn't even thought about it until I slammed into 50 and then I had to really start considering that. But, uh, in the early days, just drill, 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 you know, get out, do your, uh, do your driving and your putting and your rolls and your skip shots and, and, you know, the occasional lefty, make sure your flick is working. I had a real solid flick, uh, up until 2005 when I tore something in my, uh, right shoulder. And, uh, so, yeah, I mean, for the young guys, if you've got uh, a lot of energy and I, I just say go out and do your drills, man, you know, uh, I and, and I may have touched this on the group chat, but uh, you really aren't likely to find any top level athlete that got good at his sport by playing the sport. Yeah. I think most of them get good by doing the drills and ingraining particular skills one at a time and uh, whatever that skill may be, but uh, you know, you do your drills and then when you need them on the course, if you've done your job, they should be there for you. Uh, that's a big one. That is a really big one. And when you're young, that's when you want to do all of the, the most intense work, obviously. And I mean, when you're older, you know, you want to make sure your body is uh, going to be able to perform. So weight training helps, stretching helps, uh, doing the, uh, the, the band, you know, pulling on the band kind of thing. Um, now, when I was younger, I played a lot more aggressive. I would try the hero shot now and again, you know, and, but you always have to weigh that. Whenever you're on the tee, you have to weigh the odds of this hero shot that, you know, that, that little evil guy on your shoulders, like, go for it. Come on, go for it. You can do it. And, uh, you know, there's a guy on the other side, like, well, you know, Andrew Fish, actually, that's the guy right there. I don't know if you've heard of Andrew Fish, but he actually uh, printed up a disc that said, I, pro I solemnly promise to play boring golf. 
because, you know, a lot of times an absolutely boring round of golf and you add it up and it's like, wait a minute, this guy crushed it. And it's didn't make mistakes. You know, he, he didn't do the hero shots, but he didn't make mistakes. And, uh, that makes a big difference too. Right? I can tell you that that's, uh, like Climo, his putting was such that he never blew by. He had sort of a lift putt. And so, uh, you know, that was one of the big keys to his success. So an awful lot of things. And, and, and I was answering for both the old and young me. What are some of the drills, you know, that you would recommend for those, you know, younger players to work on to help build their game? Well, obviously, uh, you know, it's interesting because Ed Hedrick's uh, game, the uh, around nine putting game, I'm sure you've seen that, uh, where basically, you know, they have nine positions around a basket, a putting basket, and they get incrementally longer. And that was surprisingly helpful because you're putting at the basket pretty much uh, an entire, you're making an entire circle around the basket and you're also putting with different, uh, the wind. Uh, so you're putting at different wind angles, you know? So that, that, that's one thing, you know, and learning to putt from short range to further and further and further out. Uh, another thing that I always did uh, when I was younger, I ran for 10 minutes. Um, and at the end of that 10 minutes, like the last two or whatever, I would do the trunk twist run that you see football players doing. You know what I'm saying? So it, it kind of warms up your X step, so to speak. Uh, and I would do crunches and back extensors again, just trying to make sure my body was ready. Um, but, you know, you want to get the sidearm ready. You want to get your rollers ready. So, I mean, all of that stuff factors in. Uh, again, one of the reasons I think I did well is that I had Steve Slazer as a role model. And I always thought Steve Slazer was kind of a junk pitcher, if you know what I mean. If Are you familiar with that term in baseball? Any baseball player knows what a junk pitcher is. That's a guy that does uh, sliders and, and uh, you know, curveballs and knuckleballs and for me, uh, being an overall player, I knew a lot of ways to deliver a disc. And so that really helped with my scramble game. Just another obscure skill that I developed over the years was, you may have heard one of my nicknames is the Miniac. Uh, I did a lot of stuff with mini discs. And if you Google YouTube Frisbee on Letterman, one of the first videos that comes up is me on Stupid Human Tricks holding a mini Frisbee up with my breath for like 10 seconds. Uh, I also learned to throw a mini, like a whammo, like a really light, like what, 11 to, to 15 gram whammo. And I threw one of those things 330 feet one day with a, a hook thumber throw. So, you know, you got it on the hook thumb and you're throwing it like a baseball, almost completely upside down and it flips in flight. So all these little weird, obscure skills that I just really enjoyed trying, I figured out a way to sort of integrate them into my game. And I think having a good scramble game is probably one of the more underrated 
and under-practiced skills uh, nowadays. Uh, you know, a lot of the old school courses, they don't require you to, to scramble. You know, you're driving and you're putting. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just glad we've um, started moving away from everything's par three. You know, I, I, I think that that's not golf. Agree. Literally cannot agree with you more on that. I know there's a uh, episode way back when that we did together, Horatio, where I was like, I hate that everything is a par three. This is ridiculous. Let's get some par fours and fives in there. So yeah, couldn't agree more. And, and while we're kind of discussing a little bit of course design here, I'm going to segue us into talking about your experience with course, des- course design. So Greg, how did you first get into course design and how long have you been doing it? Ooh, well, there's a good question. Um, I started messing around with it in 81, uh, thereabouts, uh, actually probably younger than that. As I said, I had the record for the most amount of courses played for 15 years. And once I hit a thousand, I started reflecting on all these different courses that I had played. Uh, and I, I realized that about a third of the courses that we had played or that I had played were so grossly below anything that could be considered a standard that man, we've got to do better than this. And, and I started thinking about this because I, I don't know, I have like 19,000 holes in my head. Uh, and, and we assume I'm referring to disc golf when I say that. But, uh, uh, you know, and I wouldn't play, uh, I wouldn't go out of my way to play the very best courses necessarily. I'd play whatever was on my way to my next gig or my next tournament. and. Uh, I learned a heck of a lot from the bad courses too. (laughs) You really want to learn what not to do as well as what to do. Gosh, I didn't really even open up a company until 2010. But uh, by then I had already played a thousand courses and I I was intent to uh, improve upon the, the state of disc golf one course at a time. And, uh, so yeah, it's just par fours. You you want ob- very obvious landing zones that uh, if you take a little bit more of a chance, you may have a better opportunity. But uh, reaching that landing zone would be a slightly bigger challenge or a bigger risk, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, I I approach this golf design a little different than uh, Chuck Kennedy, for instance. I mean. Uh, that man can quantify anything. <laughs> He's a mathematician. And, uh, so he uses a lot of formulas. As you know, he did the, uh, he did the, uh, uh, the rating system for the PDGA and, and a lot of other different, uh, uh, math based things. And I, I tend to, I need to be on the ground. I need to be able to see what I'm looking at and you have to be able to look through trees, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the main thing is, is, uh, being able to look outside of your own game. That is a big one. I I've had, I've had, uh, a lot of experience designing courses, uh, that were just pitch and putt ga- uh, courses that were not suited for my game at all. Uh, and, and, uh, that's fine. I, I, I enjoy putting those kind of courses in because I know I'm spoon feeding the newbie and we need a lot of that as well. So, uh, 
it really just depends on uh, who your demographic is uh, aimed at or what your demographic, excuse me, what demographic you're aiming for. Yep. For a, this is kind of just a personal, just for my own. Uh, what do you think is like about the minimum amount of land that you need to build a fun nine hole course? Well, I, the, the, the rule of thumb that I've quoted for years is roughly an acre a hole. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you've got fair amount of tree coverage, then theoretically, you should have some good bufferage between these fairways. Uh, if you don't, then you're probably going to need more acreage, especially if you're going to start doing par fours and fives. Uh, on the other hand, gosh, I've managed to get nine holes on three and a half acres. Definitely don't recommend it. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, it can be done if you are a little bit thoughtful about, <laughs> you know, where you're giving people an opportunity to throw. Yeah. I, I mean, how, said it early and continues to say, uh, imagine the worst possible shot and somebody will throw one worse than that. So it, it really, like I say, you have, I mean, that, that's one of the advantages I have. I mean, obviously I've played at the upper level, but I've also taught uh, beginners. And so you really get to see the full spectrum of skill out there. And, you know, you have to be realistic about applying those skills uh, based on which tee you're going to or which uh, pin position or basket you're going to. And uh, uh, not everyone can do that. Yeah, absolutely. I could see the wheels turning in your head there, Horatio, when you were asking that question and listening to the answer. I could, I could physically see those wheels turning. Maybe, maybe, maybe nine acres is doable. Oh, I mean, nine acres is doable for nine holes. Yeah. Uh, like I said, the, the, the more tree coverage you have, uh, the more bufferage you're going to have between fairways, which is important. And, uh, you know, you want it to be, uh, fun, fair and safe. Although when I speak to parks, people, I try not to use the word safe when referring to a very specific hole or feature of a hole. I, I try to use the term. Uh, this should greatly reduce the likelihood of an incident. <laughs> yeah. 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 The reason I was asking is I'm, I'm from Kansas and I mean, we're one of the things we'd like to do, you know, we live here in Kansas and we have families. We're going to be here for a long time. So me and my wife, we'd like to buy a house that's on some land. You know, if you're going to live in Kansas, you might as well have some land. Like what's the point of living in the middle of nowhere, you know, if, <laughs> but is everything so expensive and they don't want to give one, they don't want to give us a house. You know, we've offered on some with land, you know, and ones that we've offered on, I was already on Google maps, planning out the course, what I could do and stuff. And especially here, it's hard to find properties that have trees. Um, a lot of properties mm -hmm. out here, you know, it's just bare land, which would make for a very, very boring, uh, disc golf course, a nine hole. Not if you put the mozzarella sticks up. Yeah, which I guess you could do something <laughs> like that, but then it'd be goofy. But, you know, I think that's that's a, a goal or a dream of mine that I'd love to do, you know, so it's very, uh, I was excited to talk to you about that for sure. 
Yeah, well, I, I guarantee you, uh, you you share this dream with a very broad uh, demographic within disc golf. I, I think that that uh, once you get the bug, I think that it is uh, it's only natural. You're driving and you're looking. I mean, like people constantly do this. Anytime you're on the interstate and you hit an interchange, it's like big dot intersections and you know overpasses and you're like oh i could do something with that hole. You know? yeah. <laughs> i mean it, it's just natural uh, you know everybody everybody wants to design a course uh not so many people want to actually build build a course yeah one of my one of my favorite uh sayings is if you want the course to yourself call a work day yeah <laughs> not even, true always obviously but uh yeah even then you know i was stuck for covid or whatever a few times and i'd go out to the cores on on a tuesday at you know 11 or 11 o'clock one o'clock and there'd be a ton of people there i'm like we're like i'm home for like sick or whatever you know reason like why are you guys here don't you guys have jobs so which is awesome to see but, you know, I think we've had a ton of good topics. You know, you've had a ton of insights into a bunch of subjects. I think it's time to get this moving along and get you on your way. What are we going to talk about today for your hot take? Uh, my hot take. Wow. There's so many things that I could uh, go off on. But uh, I mean, I, I it just the hot take right now is just. Boom. Oh, it's exploding. I mean, covid has absolutely been disc golf's shot in the arm. And uh, it's, it's fabulous. I mean, I think because of that, there are some things happening that are just unprecedented. Um, and, and like I said, I mean, there's something that I'm talking about right now that I, I wish I could divulge, but I cannot at this moment. Uh, hopefully it'll be news. but. Uh, just the fact that when I won worlds in 87, I'd say maybe 10, 15% of people that I spoke to even knew what I was talking about. Like disc golf, you mean discount golf, right? No, no, not discount golf, disc high, you know, flat plastic flying discs. That's crazy. Really? And now I would say maybe 15% of people have not heard of disc golf. I mean, you know, the, the the couple of big contracts that have just happened recently, that's incredible, man. It's fantastic. I, I There are moments when I'm jealous, like, man, I wish I had got, I, I, I might have gotten that $10 million contract, you know, but, you know, it, it, it's just, we're all standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people standing right here. And, uh, you know, I was standing on the shoulders of those below me. So, you know, it's a natural progression. I'm really excited for where disc golf is going. I'm very, very happy to be involved uh, on the uh, course design aspect because, you know, my courses are nurturing new players to become competitors. And, and so, I, I'm not sure that's in the spirit of the hot take you were looking for, but uh, it's it's just a great time for disc golf, and I'm really excited for where it's going. And we're yeah, I can't I mean, wait absolutely. to see what happens. I, 
I love I love that, and it is so cool. I mean, you, you can even look at Jomez Pro. I'm pretty sure they. I don't want to butcher this, but I'm pretty sure the deal was two years, 500 K to the disc golf pro tour. And they now have can, you know, the next two years guaranteed every single disc golf pro tour event. Jomez pro is going to be there for MPO lead card coverage. So that even before COVID, I don't think that number would have even existed. So I can't agree more. I know we've said it before that the fact that COVID really truly has done a lot of bad things in this world, but by golly, has it taken disc golf to the next level? And hopefully it's a level that is sustainable and not a level that we'll see or not a bubble that we'll see burst. I don't, I don't foresee it bursting anytime soon. I think this is definitely sustained growth, but at a point there will be a drop-off. We just have to see how far that drop-off will be. Well, certainly. And, and uh, I certainly uh, in saying that it has been disc golf shot in the arm, I, I by no means wanted to gloss over the incredible heartache and, and difficulty that it has uh, imposed on those who've had it and uh, didn't make it and their families. But uh, if there is a, uh, you know, a positive side to it, uh, I mean, as a disc golfer, that's it uh, to me. And and I think that it will continue to grow. I think that it will start seeing uh, major sponsors. I believe we are now poised to see that where we haven't before. You know, we'll, we've seen the occasional uh, big name sponsor, but it's generally local you know, from that individual tournament director, not necessarily on the tour, you know, sponsoring the tour, but sponsoring these individual events. And so uh, I'm very excited to see how that's going. I'm very excited to see uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, whether you agree with me or not, like Steve Dodge, who, who, you know, really took a big leap of faith and pushed, you know, uh, the, the pro tour out there and you know uh, there's a lot of people that pdga bash i am not one of them in fact i've been on several pdga uh, board positions over the years and i think they do a lot of uh, really great things for the sport that people just take for granted i mean nobody would have a player rating if it weren't for a pdga event and and you know just the discussions and the information and and all of the things that happen just because somebody has a rating that's pretty amazing i mean they have a a a, a magazine and they, they they do amazing things and i and i'm i'm hoping that the pdga uh continues to do what they've done and find a way to expand to make uh this golf accessible everywhere yeah super super excited to see you know how this continues to grow i think one one thing that gives me you know hope for it continuing to grow at this speed is just the interest from young people you know a lot Mm -hmm. of the a lot of the people on tour some of the pros are very young you know i think there's something very enticing about that life you know playing disc golf for a living living in a van traveling you know having you know, family, friends who that's like, that's your life. I think that's very enticing to young people, you know, if it, like any trend or, or any, I guess, thing that grows, it's 
fueled by, you know, young generations, you know, people who yeah. you know, get into it and push it, you know, make it trendy online on social media and all that. So, you know, I think that's what's going to really fuel this to the next level for sure. Yeah. Well, don't let me break into Whitney Houston's, you know, I believe the children are a future, but it's true. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it is absolutely true. So we gotta, we gotta pave the way for them and uh, you know, but uh, at the same time, having a good old parts tour would be pretty cool too. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, man, you know, it, it's, uh, I think the edge program is a good idea. And I think that that uh, opens a lot of doors and, and, and uh, spreading information, the correct information is, is huge. Uh, you know, one of the things that kills me is, is um, like nomenclature. Uh, like everybody in disc golf and ultimate in particular, they call that throw a Scooby and it's not, but more people think it is. So it's true because more people think it is, but you know, and that Scooby is actually held like a backhand and thrown from here over this way. And then, then that pterodactyl throw that uh, big germ does, that's actually a scuba. But yeah. anyway, um, I'll tell you uh, something I was just uh, thinking about. <clears throat> that is going to help uh, just, I don't know how we do this. I'm not sure how we do this. This is something I fight with on a regular basis uh, is providing proper uh, information to parks departments and uh, those that have disc golf on their land, those that, uh, you know, we want the best disc golf course possible. And, you know, we want the pebble beach of disc golf and they can't afford the pebbles, let alone the beach. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about what it takes to put a disc golf course in. And, uh, so the education, uh, of what it does require that's that's a big one right there that is a very big one and and how we get that to the parks departments you know, we're still working on that but i think that would go a long way towards improving our venues and uh unless you know we start down the road just start doing all private venues i hate to put it on the shoulders of jomez but i feel like they kind of have a torch at the moment you know that they're they're caring for the sport. I feel like even something that they could do, you know, with someone who's building a course or who has built a course and doing, you know, videos or something like that, just like a process of what it takes to build a course. And I think it would have been cool. Uh, yeah. The only thing I can think of currently is Eagles Crossing, you know, if they had done some kind of documentary type thing, you know, where they followed that owner and the designer along while they did that, you know, put that in a, documentary video style to where you know people could see it and, and people could go look at that or you know you could show that to parks departments you're like oh this is what it takes this is kind of what we look for i right. feel like something like that would be would be something that you know we yeah could do. documentary of that would have been astounding and and i i've thought about this for years uh, I, I thought you know it'd be interesting to put together a game show where you get uh, a big chunk of land and you get uh three to five teams of two people who go out and, and spend some time on the property and uh, submit uh, proposed layouts, you know, and, and 
just sort of have some experts uh, look at them and and uh, kind of judge you know which one. It, 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 you know, I didn't uh, obviously write the show or try to pitch the show, but I thought it would be an interesting concept. But uh, yeah, I mean, the good thing about uh, private venues is they don't have the red tape. Uh, they can do whatever they can afford to do. And so that means, well, here's an interesting thing. If you look at DGCR and uh, look at the list of the top 10 courses on the planet, I believe you'll find that Idlewild is like the only non-private course on that list of the mm. top 10. And then if you do the top 10 private courses, it's the same list. It's just Idlewild isn't on there because it is a public course. But uh, so that should tell you something right there that, that, that private courses, uh, they can get away with so much more. And uh, really it's just a matter of what they can afford to do. Yeah, I, that makes complete sense. And and you, like we talked about in our big group episode, like you can do almost virtually anything you want. You can build an Eagles Crossing. You can build a Maple Hill. You can build anything. Whereas with the park department, you have to go through all these hoops, all this red tape, like you were saying. And maybe you're, what you had in your head doesn't even come close to what you were able to do because people along the way right. said no. So, yeah, completely understand that. Horatio, let's get into the ACE round. Could you maybe describe that for newer listeners and get us started with question one? Yep. Just same questions. We ask every person that we have on just to get an idea of, you know, inside of everyone's head and try to give a quick, you know, rundown to new players, something to take away from the episode. Um, first question we got is you're taking a player who wants to buy their first set of discs. What one putter mid and fairway or driver do you recommend to them? Well, uh, I should start by saying that the uh, a starter pack, a starter kit with three discs is, is obviously the no-brainer there. But, uh, you know, I love telling people that uh, overstable is overrated and understable is underrated because it, it, it really is. And uh, so, yeah, I would, I would always go with, uh, you know, lighter weight, uh, discs, putters, and mid-ranges at first. And even if you do buy that starter pack, I'm still going to tell you to take that fastest one and set it aside for a while. You know, I mean, I've been giving that analogy of uh, learning to throw discs is like a staircase or a ladder. You know, you want to start at the bottom rung and work your way up really slowly otherwise you know you got your foot way up above your head trying to make the, you're just making the climb harder and and so yeah start with the, the lighter weight uh putters and mid-ranges at first because uh if, if you're trying to learn to throw with a high-speed driver well that you're almost assuredly going to start throwing with an anheuser and you're not going to trust understable discs after that yeah. Because everything rolls, everything lands on its edge. And so if you learn to throw with understable discs first, 
you're going to learn what it means to get glide because your arm. It, it, okay. I, I give people the airplane analogy, you know, a disc, you know, left wing down goes left, right wing down goes right. And your arm is the engine here. And so the faster a disc, the harder it is to control. And the newer you are, the less arm speed you have. So if, if you don't have a lot of arm speed, your arm, you know, you're trying to throw a katana, which is a 13 speed, but your arm is, is you know, a katana is like a, a stealth jet and, and a, your arm is, <laughs> it's a Piper Cub, you know, and the disc is just going to fall out of the air. So go light and and uh and slow and work your way up the ladder and be patient and uh it'll come but you have to allow yourself to work up the ladder yeah i really really like that analogy i think there's a lot that you can take away from that and i cannot agree more start with those putters start with those mids then work your way up love that second question we got for you i think this is going to be a very fitting one someone who's played so many courses like yourself what is the favorite course you have played and one course that you have not played yet that you would like to knock off the list that is such a huge question um well i mean i'm at uh what 1303 now and uh oh my god i i mean i'm pretty partial to uh the the canyon course uh, where they do throw down now uh but as you may know i designed the original back in uh what was it i think it got pulled in 2005 I put it in in 97 and it got pulled in 05 but yeah, I absolutely adored that property and the course and everything else. So, I mean, uh, to be put on the spot, that was probably it. Uh, one of my favorites. I played a lot of other people's courses that I've enjoyed. I don't just like my courses, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I like uh, obscure things. I mean, I'm really dying to try that... Uh, course in the caves and near st louis i think that would be astounding um there's a lot of courses in the uh northwest um uh, i'm trying to think of the name of the course now I'm, I'm brain farting i haven't had enough caffeine today obviously uh but uh there's a lot of courses that i'm seeing on tour that i would love to try um so yeah i don't i don't have one in particular, I think my favorite list is probably going to come in groups of 10 because <laughs> I, I really do want to get back out there and, and do another uh, serious uh, uh, course collecting uh, tour. But yeah. I, I, I can't really think of uh, one in particular that's like, this is the course that I've got to play before I kick it. You know, there's, there's so many good ones out there now. Yeah, no, that's definitely, definitely true, especially for people who just started playing. There's so many local ones. Um, all right, next question we got for you here is one tip you would give to yourself who just started playing? Uh, I mean, uh, it, it wouldn't have to be the uh, go light thing because, you know, when I started, I've, I've pretty much seen the entire progression 
of disc technology? Well, I, I guess for me, uh, what I, advice I would give myself, uh, just based on my progression as a player, is to actually cross-train, you know, do other things, do things other than disc golf. And, and uh, some of the best players that I see out there have skills that were ingrained from other sports. Uh, you know, uh, Macbeth and, and a few other folks are uh, Ricky uh, baseball players, you know, uh, and, and fairly high level, you know, uh, Johnny McRae. And uh, I don't know if you remember Steve Valencia, uh, not big guys, but they were soccer players. So these guys know how to use their legs and their hips to generate power. You know, I, I never really had that. I had to learn it through different ways. So I, I, I think that uh, me personally, I would like to have told myself, you know, do the, do the exercises, do the work to get your legs to generate the power, your legs and your hips to generate the power and maybe you won't be beating yourself up to throw so hard. <laughs> yeah. I really, really like that. Fourth question we've got for you. What is your favorite memory playing disc golf? I, I think one of the most amazing times that I had there, there's so many, so many great moments, uh, you know, winning worlds. I mean, how do you discount that? Uh, but going to Japan uh, to play, uh, until I went to Japan with Crazy John, and thank you so much, Craze, for inviting me over there uh, for the first time and the second and third. Was, the amount of respect that we got over there was just mind blowing, and you know, it was humbling to a degree. Uh, just uh, went over in '92 for the first time, and. Uh, I don't believe they really saw much of fledgling players. I think their first really big experience with disc golf and disc sports in general were people like crazy and, and the folks that he brought over there. And so, yeah, that was a mind blowing experience. I'm so grateful for my international travel. Uh, both of those were international, uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean to, to, to encapsulate it, Anytime I'm traveling, it's generally going to be enriching. And, and I can't recommend enough to travel because I think that it just enriches the soul. And I think that you learn a lot about people when you travel and meet people from areas that are not your own uh, area. And, uh, you know, you end up finding out that there's some things that are very different and you find out that there are quite a lot of things that you have in common. And and so it's it's fun in, in just meeting the Frizz fam from all over the place. Uh, I would say that that has had a greater effect on me than just about anything. Yeah, there's definitely something great about, you know, experiencing stuff for the first time. You know, I think that's really good for, for people. All right, last question we got here for you is, what is the biggest mistake you see new players make? 
you know, I, I, I think we've kind of covered it, but you know, just like, Hey, uh, those guys can throw 500 feet. I'm going to get myself the same exact disc they got. And, uh, I'm going to be able to do that. And you know, it's not going to be the case. You know, so I, I think people just trying to, I mean, it's great to have, uh, role models, uh, but you're deluding yourself. If you think, uh, well, I, I saw that guy throw 500 feet. I'm going to go out and get myself a high speed driver and I'll be able to do that too. Uh, just, you know, start slow and work your way up, you know, and, and warm up and, and, you know, and, and he, I think that warming up is, is a key to longevity. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really feel like we've kind of, kind of covered that on the whole ladder slash stairs, uh, analogy is, uh, you know, they just, the people don't know that you, you have to just start slow and work your way up. There's so many little things that aren't evident to people, uh, at the beginning, uh, you know, and, and, and people are, should watch videos, um. One thing I will mention about uh, the, the, the Jomez videos is that a lot of the current Jomez and uh, high-end tournament uh, coverage is they're, they're kind of bigger open courses. And uh, I don't want people to lose touch with the wooded courses, the finesse game. The finesse game is highly underrated. And you know, I've won like 170 tournaments without being able to throw 450. So there's a whole lot of other skill sets. I know when people ask me for lessons, 95% of the time, it's about learning to throw farther. And I can help you with that at your, at, you know, up until a certain point in your game. Uh, but there's so many other aspects of the game to concentrate on, not just putting and upshots. I mean, the whole mental aspect of, of the game, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, a lot of people, when they uh, start playing, they aim at a tree and hope they miss. And then they start hitting the tree and they're damning their luck when in fact they're getting better. They're doing what they're trying to do. They're just trying to do the wrong thing. You know, don't aim for a tree and hope you miss aim for a window and try to hit it and try to hit it at a certain angle at a certain speed so that, you know, when I hit that window, I want this disc to be at this angle moving at this speed because, you know, if you do that, theoretically, the remainder of the flight will not be a surprise. Yeah, so, absolutely. I, I love that because that is so true. Initially it's like, uh, I'm aiming at this tree. Hopefully I'm not good enough to hit it and I miss and it ends up being good. And, yeah. As you get better, you start hitting the tree and now you got to learn to not hit the tree. Yeah. That, I've never heard anyone say it like that before, but that was really good. Greg, this was so much fun. I had a blast. I know Horatio and everyone at home had a blast as well. Where can the listeners connect with you? Maybe they've got some private land and they want you design to design their course. Where can people connect with you? Well, uh, my company's name is World Champion Disc Golf Design, and uh, I am located in Mount Dora, Florida. Uh, the, my, uh, my website is uh, worldchampiondiscgolfdesign.com. I believe you can also get there by wcdgd.com. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got, 
I've got the, the, the Jones, the bug. I, I love putting courses in. Uh, you know, I, I was going to do a shirt that said disc golf is my Xanax, but I think really my Xanax is designing, being out there in the woods and just looking for lines and trying to create fun, fair and safe challenges. So uh, I don't think I'll give you, give everybody my phone number on this particular podcast. Yeah. That might be a bad idea. Yeah, no, well, we really appreciate, you know, thank you to, you know, anyone that plays disc golf, you know, thank the course designers, you know, that's who, because of you guys, you know, why we get to play really awesome courses, played one this week, and that was a ton of fun, you know, they made do with the space they had, and it really, you know, the, the time they took into, you know, really showed, so really, really appreciate yeah. what you do, and, you know, all the other course designers, and, hopefully get to see, you know, new, exciting, fun, you know, private courses pop up. I can't wait, you know, in 10 years, what the top 10 courses will be. I'm sure it'll be a completely different top 10 probably. Um, oh yeah. 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 It's, it's going to be amazing. By the way, I want to mention also uh, world champion disc golf design on Facebook is probably a good rate, good way to reach me as well. Uh, so I'd love to design a course for you. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. You know, best of luck this season, you know, this year, uh, all the work you're doing and, you know, thanks for coming on. Hopefully we talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Horatio and Q. Really appreciate the invite and uh, just um, really grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you and uh, just can't wait to see where the sport goes from here. Thank you for listening to the Chain Clankers podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Chain Clankers and hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to us from so you never miss another episode.